Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Catechism. At BRCC, we believe that our catechism is a useful tool to help us understand and grow in our faith. But why? Find out in our series, Catechism. We're uh, going to be continuing in our series this week looking at uh, the catechism, or you can call it the foundations of the faith. We're kind of working our way through the early sections of it, just looking at some of the foundational uh beliefs of what it means to be Christian, of what the Scripture teaches us. And so today we're going to be asking the question of what God demands of us. And our text is going to be Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Matthew 5, 48. Uh, I'll be using the NIV. You can follow along on the screen here or uh, also on your, in your Bible, on your uh, device. Whichever way, there'll be a number of Scriptures that I'll be bringing out. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Hear now the word of the Sovereign God. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's a uh, major idea of two things that go uh, together, which are privilege uh, and responsibility. Or if you have a certain position, that there is a responsibility that goes along with it. And these two are imperative that they are held together. And if you want to know what happens when they're not, look at many of our leaders in our culture today. They constantly get themselves in trouble because they enjoy the privileges of their position and don't recognize and follow through on the responsibilities of it. When I was a, a young mid, we had, a, we had to learn two sayings. You know, it was called RHIP and RHIR. Rank has its privileges, but rank has its responsibilities. And these two have to always be held together. And this is important for us because when we consider human beings, every one of you, by the fact that you are human, has incredible, incredible privilege. You are the image bearer of God Almighty. You are made in His image, and that's only true of you and me as human beings. It's not true of anything else in all creation. And the fact that we are made in the image of God gives us incredible potential. It gives us incredible authority and privilege. We have a position that is unique. However, it also gives us a unique responsibility. We are held accountable by God in a way that is unique. And so the question we want to ask today is, for us as human beings, what does God expect and demand of us as His image bearers? What does God demand of you? Now, when we ask this question, I can really sum it up in one word. What God demands of you is perfection. So that's it right there, which is not very hard, right? Notice in our text, Jesus says, Matthew 5, 48, be what? Perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, some people, when I was a young Christian, I used to try and do this. They try and reduce that and say, well, it doesn't really mean perfect. It means mature or complete. And if they've dabbled a little bit in Greek or read somebody who's dabbled a little bit in Greek, they'll even say, well, the Greek word telos, which this 
uh, is, is the word behind perfect here. Sometimes it means mature or complete, and it can. It means something has reached its goal or it's finished. For example, when Jesus said, it is finished, it is completed on the cross, that's the word he used. It was, you know, to telestai is what he cried out. So they'll, they'll do that. But the only problem is that's never used that way of God. And notice Jesus says, I'm wanting you to be this thing just like God is. He's not saying be mature like God is mature. Okay, that's not his point. His point is God is perfect. And you, therefore, need to be perfect. And the reason we try to get around this is that's a very uncomfortable verse. I was like, well, I mean, God can't mean be perfect because I'm not. So there's got to be some kind of a curve here. And he's just telling me be striving for maturity. But if you actually read this in the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount, the whole Sermon on the Mount is driving this point home. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is not to reduce the law. Jesus says, some of you think that I've come here to somehow abolish the law. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And when he starts preaching the point of the law throughout the sermon, it's like, look, you know, you were told don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't think about it. You were told don't murder. I'm telling you, don't get angry without cause. You were told don't steal. I'm telling you, don't covet. Don't even think about it. The law is not only an external thing, it's an internal thing. God is after your desires, your attitude, your heart. And what he's doing is, as he comes to the end of chapter 5, he's saying what I'm telling you is you have to be perfect. That's what the law demands of you. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And his perfection includes outward actions, inner desires, and our motives behind everything we do. We're to be perfect like God is perfect. Now, the reason for this, if you think about it, is because of what I said at the beginning. Because we are made in the image of God. It's not an arbitrary thing that this perfection is being commanded and demanded of you and I. We were made to be like God. And He is perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. So we are called to be perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. Now, this is not a call because God is many things you and I cannot be. God is infinite in His knowledge and in His presence. God does not grow tired like us. God is sovereign over all things. And we can't be any of those things. Now what's interesting, if you watch our culture, I would maintain we're trying very hard to be those things rather than being like God in the ways we actually can be. In other words, if you look around right now, our culture runs as if we are not created beings who require rest. We act as if we don't need Sabbath when God has told us you actually do need Sabbath. We act as if we get to set the rules for everything and we are totally sovereign when God says you are not, you are under me and stewards. So actually the ways that we can't be like God, we seem to be bent on trying to be like Him but the ways we actually were created to be like him in his character, that we somehow start trying to reduce and set aside. So God has made us to be like him in character, and in fact, he demands it of us. So I want to remind us for a couple of minutes of what God's character is like to point out to us what that means for us. So remember, 
Last week we looked, and if you notice the two questions that go together here, question seven and eight, if you look at question seven, we say, what is God's character like? God is perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. And we spent our time last week looking at those three character traits. Well, then what does God demand of you and me? Well, the answer is he demands the same thing. He demands we be perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. We're going to see these three terms recur many times in the thing. So let's take a look at each one of them briefly and show that I'm not just stating that the Scripture actually tells us over and over and over again we're given the call where, for example, God says, I'm holy, you have to be holy. So the first one is God demands that I be perfect in holiness like him. Leviticus 19.2 is one of many places where we say, we read uh, Moses is being, or the Lord speaking to Moses, says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And lest we think, because some people say, well, that's Old Testament, which isn't a true way to look at the scripture. But if you notice, Peter brings this up, speaking to Gentiles, he applies this same passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. And he's quoting one place is Leviticus 19.2. Now I say it's one place because God's command, be holy because I am holy, is actually repeated many times in the Old Testament. In fact, there's an entire section of Scripture in the book of Leviticus that's known as the Holiness Code, where God is speaking to Israel regarding every aspect and area of their life. Here's how you got to treat your neighbor. Here's how you're to conduct yourself sexually. Here's how you're to control your mouth. Here's how you speak truth. Here's how you don't steal things. And all of it keeps going back to you have to be holy because I am holy. You can't be like the other nations around you. They all have got their own way of thinking about what they're supposed to do. You have to be like me, is what God tells them. And so God speaks this to us. Peter tells us this is required of all of us because God is holy and we are his image bearers. And for you and I, as his people, we have to be holy. Now, that means, a remind us last week when we talked about holiness, that's a word that, that carries a lot in it. It means that we are to be, uh, in a, the way we desire and act, we're to act in a way that is just and righteous and good and pure. We're to abhor and to be set against sin, just like God is. That's what the call to holiness is. It's central in that holiness code, and God is saying again, I'm holy. It's who I am. I didn't grow into this. It's my very character. I made you to be like me, so since I'm holy, you have to be holy. Second aspect is God demands that I be perfect in love. And we see this command as well throughout the Scripture. I'm just going to pick two in each of these areas. There are many more. But in Luke chapter 6, and this is actually... The verses that lead up to Matthew 5, 48 say the same thing that's going on here in Luke 6. It's a little more compressed in Luke. That's why I'm quoting it. But these are actually the verses that lead up to the demand to be perfect. Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful 
just as your Father is merciful. So notice Jesus here, and he taught this many different times. He said, God is kind and merciful and gracious and forgiving, even to people who are ungrateful. Even if they don't like it, even if they don't even receive it, he is still that way to them, and you be the same way your Father is. He causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous, the rain to fall on both. You be that way in your actions. In Ephesians chapter 5, remember we were just looking recently at Ephesians in our sit, walk, stand. In the center of the section on walk, how we live out the grace we've been given, Paul puts it this way. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So notice here in that verse, we're being told, first off, you're, you're imitating God. Okay? You're the image of God. And Paul actually said in chapter 4, look, part of you being saved means God is renewing your spirit and he is forming you back into his image. That image that got shattered in the fall, he's putting back together. And so Paul says, so you're going to try and imitate God. And God is a God of love. Therefore, as his dearly loved children, you are to love as well. And the standard of that is as Christ loved you, as he gave himself up for you, as he laid down his life for you when you were unkind, ungrateful, wicked, so you go and you act the same way. So this call to be loving means that we desire and act in a way that's kind, merciful, gracious, compassionate, and forgiving of others' sin towards us. And again, not expecting anything in return. Love is about what is given, and it is expressed in action. And so this call is central to who we are created to be. We're going to see in a few weeks, remember when Jesus was asked to summarize the entire law and the prophets, summarize the Old Testament, and remember what was the command he picked out? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which was actually part of the Shema. It's at the end of the Shema that they repeated every day. And then secondly, Jesus said, because i got to throw this in, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. The whole Ten Commandments are actually broken into these two halves. So this idea of love, in a certain way, sense, sums up the law. Because if I truly love God, I'm going to act in a manner that's holy. I'm also going to walk in integrity. And if I am loving my neighbor, well, then that fulfills everything else. Because then I won't commit adultery. I won't steal. I won't lie about them. I won't you know, dishonor them. I won't covet what's theirs and try and take it. It'll cover all the different things. So we're told to live in love. And again, the standard is both the source and the standard. The source is God has loved us. So we can extend that love to others. And the standard is God's love. And I remind us of this. This is important because there is much that goes on in our culture today that says, I'm loving another person. And in fact, love can be used, you know, the scripture says love covers a multitude of sins. It's used today to justify a multitude of sins. As long as I can call it love, that should mean that it's okay. But in fact, many things that are called love in our culture, the scripture would say is actually hate. Because if I'm doing something that is distorting you, that is pulling you away from God, that is, that is actually degrading who you were made to be, it does not matter what I feel, it's actually not love. 
I can call it love, but the standard of holiness is God. And the standard of love is God. So the question is, would God behave in this manner? And would those who are consciously trying to be formed into his image behave in this manner? And if the answer is no, then it's not love. It doesn't matter how I feel about it, how many op-ed pieces I write in the paper about it, what laws I get passed. It's not love if it doesn't line up with who God is. So God is love, and he demands that his image bearers be like him, perfect in love. And then finally, God demands that I be perfect in integrity, like him. And remember, integrity's got these two parts. It means I walk in truth, and it means I'm consistent in all these areas. So a couple of verses that say this, Leviticus 19.11, part of that holiness code again, says this, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. I've always loved that verse because, see, we, we you know, well, I, I didn't lie exactly. I just kind of deceived them a little bit. But see, God said, no, you, you can't do either. You've you got to speak the truth in love. So do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. You're to be people of integrity. Psalm 101 puts it this way. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. That is not a verse people put up on their mirror every day, is it? This isn't at the top of our Jesus promise book. Because you read that and you say, whoa. Okay, and I'm going to come back to that, but, but let the law of God sink in. If, if you're not a person of integrity, you cannot stand in my presence. You will not dwell in my house. So to be perfect in integrity means our words and actions are true, faithful, without falsehood or lying, that we keep our promises and we do not change. We're going to read another verse in a minute that speaks about keeping our promises and not changing what that requires of us. So because God is a God of integrity, we have to be people of integrity. And I want you to notice, you remember when Jesus was debating with the Pharisees at one point, he said, Satan is the father of lies. See, he's pointing out, God is the God of truth. Satan is a liar. In fact, Jesus, I love the way the NIV puts it, they say it's his native language. It's not, Satan doesn't have to think to translate it. When he opens his mouth, lies is what pops out. Okay? That's the way he thinks. It's, the, it's what's deep in his nature. And God is saying that's not what you were made for. Your native language needs to be truth, not falsehood. And so we're called not to walk. See, when I'm walking, therefore, in a lack of integrity, when I'm lying and deceiving, I'm actually walking in the image of Satan rather than the image of Christ. And so God's perfect in integrity. He commands his image bearers to be like him. So I'm going to put up a, a psalm here that kind of summarizes all of this to show us this is what God demands of you. And let's read this. I'm going to read it. But as you're reading this, please don't try and reduce it. Just God didn't stutter. This is what he means. Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous 
and who speaks the truth from his heart, who has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong, and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Now notice this does not say, Lord, who gets to be declared a saint? Who becomes the foundation of the new Jerusalem? This is who gets to come into the house? Who gets to be part of the people? And it demands blamelessness. And notice there, the word righteous is holiness. Truth is integrity. And doing your neighbor no wrong is love. So notice the, the same standards are there. And he's telling us we have to be blameless and perfect at this. This is what God's call and command is to do this. So, I'm going to pray, and y'all go out and do it. That'd be good news, wouldn't it? I mean, see, when you read this, here's what we oftentimes do. Well, that's not what it really means. Yes, it is what it means. God's law, which we're going to look at next week, that's how God reveals to us what holiness, love, and integrity is. Don't reduce it. Let it have its weight. Let it do its job. Because the job is, if you read this and you say, oh yeah, I'll go out and do that, you played under power lines a lot as a child. You're, you're not thinking clearly at all. Because friends, that is not me at my best moment, much less at my worst. So how do we do this? Now, I want to be clear, where we're at in the catechism is about guilt. It is the law of God doing its work. So it's a while before we get there today because we're in worship together. I'm not going to leave you all hanging with law. I want to talk about gospel. Because here's the good news, friends. What God demands, God gives. What the law of God demands of you and me, the gospel gives to us in Jesus Christ. And that is our only hope. You see, the law shows what God demands, and what God demands is perfection. And so that's why we can't change Matthew 5, 48 and say, well, God's just calling me to try really hard. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say try really hard like your Father in heaven does. Because see, God doesn't have to try really hard. It's who He is. And in fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is this is the way you're supposed to be down to the core of your being. Jesus is laying it on heavier than they've ever heard. And He tells the people, look, the Pharisees think there's something. I'm telling you, your righteousness has to far exceed what the Pharisees have. And that's not because the Pharisees were bad people. They were very moral in many different ways. But they're not perfect. They're not nearly perfect. Perfect. And so they came up with all kinds of ways to get around and do all kinds of things. And Jesus said, you guys can strain out gnats and swallow camels. You do these little things that God didn't even ask you to do while you're ignoring the big things he did tell you to do. Because you realize you can't do the things he told you to do. And so that's what the law of God does. And friends, it cannot be changed because it's not something arbitrary. It's who God is. His law is a reflection of who He is, and you and I were made to be a reflection of who He is. Stamped in your DNA, whatever's 
smaller than DNA, mitochondria, or whatever it is, is I need to be perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. It's who you were made to be, and it's who I was made to be. And so this is God's call, God's nature, His creation, His law, our very nature all demand that we be perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. There is nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with me. There's a lot of something wrong with me. I am not perfect in any of those things. And any human being who thinks they are is simply deluded. And so when you run into this, you know, there was a old joke, you know, when the prophets of Israel came along and they would cry out to the people and they would apply God's law and they would say, look, you know, Amos used the reference of I'm the plumb line and God's dropping a plumb line right here in the middle of you. And you realize your wall is woefully crooked. There's two options. You rebuild the wall or you kill the prophet, which is easier. Kill the prophet. That's quicker. When God's law drops a plumb line, I have to either despair of my own righteousness or I'll just change the law. And friends, we have over and over and over again tried to change the law of God because we think that's easier. But that is not the path out. We're we're tempted to change the law of God. We're tempted to change the character of God to save ourselves. So we say, well, God's not really holy like that. As we talked about last week, God's loving. He's basically like a big grandpa up in the sky, okay? And if you watch me with my grandchildren, there's not a whole lot of law going on there, okay? It's not. My wife will tell you, it's pretty much, my children will really tell you, where's the dude who raised us? Like, he's gone, you know, (laughs) right? And so we make God like that. Well, you know, but see, that's not God's nature, friends, and and actually, uh, in, in, our, um, in the After Hours video of this week, I talked, well, yeah, you, you understand. God's not set against sin because he's a crotchety old dude. He's set against sin because it's destructive. It will destroy you. It will deform you. It will sap away all joy. Sin reigns. There is a place where it reigns. It's called hell. And that's what it is. And so God says, I I can't allow that to go on. But see, we want to change him, but all of that is false. Or we sometimes, I'm not going to change God, but I'm going to redefine his call from perfection to good enough. It's like, you know, I I remember coming out of a calculus final at the academy, and I was barely passing by the skin of my teeth because some of y'all, like Marty teaches calculus, I was his nightmare of a student in calculus because I was lost. And I remember coming out of the final and somebody asked, you know, I had like a 70.1. And somebody asked, how did you do? I said, oh, I failed. (laughs) There is no question. But everybody else I talked to failed as well. So I'm suspecting there's a big curve coming on this sucker. And I was right and I passed the class. And we count God's going to do that. He's going to look and say, whoa, this is a mess. I'm going to apply the big curve. Friends, that's not going to happen. The law of God doesn't go by a curve. What you get is what you get. And unfortunately, it's not a 70.1. It's not even close to that. So Jesus comes through, because see, that's even what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus comes through and cuts through and says, it's worse than you even imagined. 
You're just dealing with what you're doing with your hands. I'm talking about what's going on in your heart. I'm talking about the things you think and the things you desire, and God's demanding perfection and all of that. And see, then we're left saying, how can we do it? And Jesus says, be perfect as God is perfect. So where can we find hope? Hope is found in the gospel. Notice in the book of Romans, Paul has gone through and he's quoted a whole bunch of things out of the Psalms in particular to show our sin. And then he summarizes it this way in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and Paul's already proven that everybody's under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous, that word is justified, in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Do you see what Paul says? The law, which he likens elsewhere to Mount Sinai. You remember when God descended on Mount Sinai and gave the law? There was all of the thunderings and rumblings and all the people who thought they wanted to see God. What did they suddenly say? We held a vote. Moses, you go get it. You remember? We, we don't want to be there. We, we, we can't come near there. You go get this stuff. Mount Sinai, the law of God, thunders at you and I until we close our mouths and until we are silenced before God. And every attempt to justify myself, the law comes and it thunders even more loudly until I realize I have no excuse and no hope in the law. And Paul says, but don't you understand? That's never why the law was given. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Through the law, you become conscious of sin. I've used the analogy before that, you know, when I had both stenosis in my back and disc problems up here, the first thing I do is I go down and they do MRIs. Does the MRI do anything to make my back problem better? No. I go get an MRI every day and it won't get any better. It simply diagnoses my problem. But that's actually good news. Because once I know what the problem is, I now can go to somebody who can actually fix my problem. And that's what the law does. It diagnoses for us that our problem is sin and you're not going to fix it on your own. And so notice Paul continues in the very next verse in Romans and says this, but now, remember when Bobby taught last year in Ephesians, you got the same thing in Ephesians where we're dead and trespasses and sins, but now, or but God, there. Here it's the same glorious thing, but now. You were, the law has thundered and silenced you. You are guilty, you have no hope. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The answer is, it's not your righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It is a righteousness that comes from God. If you got your Bible, circle that word from. Highlight that word from. The righteousness you need is a perfect righteousness. And you don't have it. I don't have it. I can't give it to you down front here. No matter how much we pray for it, it needs to come 
from God. But thanks be to God that righteousness has come and it is given through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul tells us. This is the gospel. And it's always what the Old Testament was pointing to. It was always pointing and saying there is one who is coming and he will fulfill the law and he will bear the wrath for sin. He will make atonement and he will give righteousness over to you. He'll take all your sin, all your wickedness and give you all his righteousness. And notice Paul says, you don't even then receive this righteousness by doing enough works. Well, if you do enough, I'll kind of add on and make up. No, you don't do anything. You receive it by faith, not by works. Our works have nothing to do with us being justified. So through Jesus, we are justified. And I want you to hear and understand there's little evangelical shorthand, you know, justified, just as if I'd never sinned, for which I give you a 50% grade, because that's half the truth. Because friends, if you had never sinned, you still haven't positively kept the law. And you need to keep the law. You need to be holy and loving and full of integrity. And so justification is not only just as if I'd never sinned, but positively as if I had obeyed every single one of God's law in, in every thought I have, every desire I have, every word I speak, every actions my hands have ever done. That's what justified means. And that is what is given to you and me in Jesus Christ. So notice 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse we you know, people will quote a lot, but listen, notice what it says on both halves. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. See, my sin is put on Christ. But notice the second half of the verse. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when God says, I demand perfection, we stand there covered in the perfection of Jesus Christ. When God says, I demand perfection in holiness in every desire you have ever had, we stand there clothed in perfection of holiness in every desire that was ever had because it's Jesus' holiness that's given to us. Love, the exact same thing. Integrity, the exact same thing. So you and I are not in a place of being neutral before God, a little bit part of the way there. There's nothing you can add to it. It is perfect holiness, perfect love, perfect integrity, and it is all God's gift to you and me in Jesus Christ. You are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And so what we need to understand is what God has demanded, He has given to us in Jesus Christ. Perfect holiness, perfect love, perfect integrity. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. Do, do you understand that? And this is imperative to us because when when you and I are, are looking and considering ourselves, you can tell how deeply this is sunk into you. Do you despair when you come before God? Again, what I was speaking about last week, because I didn't have a good week. That I'm still thinking somehow, I'm counting that what I'm doing is adding on to it. Okay? 
Friends, that is, that is like taking the most pristine thing that has come out of this perfectly clean environment where we're making things, and I've been making mud pies, and I come in, and I'm going to add to it. Uh, no, you're not. You're going to detract. That's all you're going to do. You have perfect righteousness given to you in Jesus Christ. So how do we apply this? And we'll come to the table. First question Have I heard God's demand and let it do its work? We are tempted again to alter and reduce God's demand, but friends, that is the path to destruction, not salvation. If if you have heard, here's how you and I can know. How do I know if God has, if God's law has done its work? I know when my mouth closes and I'm silent. And there's no, but God, I, when God's law has done its work, I, I, I offer nothing. See, that's the difference. You remember Saul? The prophet comes, the prophet convicts of sin, and what does Saul say? But you don't understand. See, I was going to. And the prophet says, no, God told you to do this. Well, but, but see, when the prophet comes to David, whose sin was far worse, far, far worse, and the prophet says, you're the man. What does David say? I have sinned. That's it. Has the law of God done its work? Because when it has, that's it. I, I have sinned. I have nothing else to say. And if God says, speak in your own defense, I, I have no defense. That's what the law of God does. Has it done that work? Friend, do you see that God demands perfection? Perfection. If you're here and, and you, don't, you don't understand what this whole Christian thing is or if somebody's listening and you don't understand what it is, please understand, Christianity is not about being a little better than I was. God demands perfection. Do we understand that? Have I admitted, therefore, this is what Christianity comes down to, that I have fallen far, far short of this. The beginning of Christian faith is not that I'm better than my neighbor. The beginning of Christian faith is I admit there's no hope in that entire path. No, I have fallen short. This has nothing to do with me and my righteousness. I am guilty before God. And I have despaired of justifying myself before God. Has the law of God done that work in you and me? If it has never done that work in you, I urge you this morning, let it. Do not listen to the voice that tries to reduce down what God demands. Absolute, stunning perfection. But that leads to the second question, have I received God's gift of perfect holiness, love, and integrity through the gospel of Christ? Because see, when you see God's demand, and then I see God's provision in Christ, uh, that, that leads me to worship. That, that leads to a complete and utter uh, love and uh, singing and wonder before God because I cannot believe what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. And that becomes a recognition. When we come to this table in a couple minutes, how do I have the right 
to stand up here and in the place of God say, I'm going to do what Jesus did and break that which represents his body and tell you, sinners, to feed upon Christ. How do we do that? Because we are perfect in Jesus Christ. And I am invited to this table because of Jesus Christ. And I have a place at this table because of Jesus Christ. And when I understand that, I can take the bread. I can feed upon Christ. I can drink of the cup, and it's a cup of salvation because it's given to me in Jesus Christ. Do we understand this? And if you do, and you say, yes, I do, then I want to encourage you. When you despair of sin, look to Christ. Salvation is never found looking inside, friends. See, this is, this is our problem. The whole world is telling you your problem is out there and your salvation is in here. God is telling you, no, your problem is in here and salvation is out there in Jesus Christ. That's where salvation is. It is outside of us. It is what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. It is something that is not mine, but thanks be to God, it is given to me freely. I love free grace, as if there could be any other kind of grace. But Paul's saying it's just, it's grace upon grace. It's free grace. That's how you and I are justified. And when you grasp this, you don't hang your head as a sinner. You know you are the received child of God. So we're going to come to the table. If you want to go ahead and bring it across. This table is a visible representation to you and me of the law and the gospel. His demand and his provision in Christ. That the bread which represents his body is broken because sin, oh, friends, sin breaks. It destroys. That's what it does. And the cup is poured out because sin demands blood. That is the law of God. But thanks be to God, it's also the gospel. It's the provision because Christ is broken so that you and I are not. And he pours out his blood so that ours is not. And rather than drinking the cup of curse, we drink the cup of salvation and blessing. This is God's good gift to us. I encourage you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come and join with us. You do not have to be a member of our congregation. This is the Lord's table, and we are glad to open it to all who profess faith in Christ. If you are here saying, I don't buy all that. I think I'm good enough. Then I would encourage you to let this pass. Because as you're going to see when we pray, the very taking of this bread and drinking this cup is a profession. I don't have any hope other than Jesus Christ. But in Christ, I am full of hope. I am full of hope. Uh, as always, if you are here and you need a gluten-free option, if you just raise your hand, we will bring that to you in a couple moments. So friends, let's come to the table together. What I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood 
which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that this morning we come to this table. And Lord, we come to this table not shrinking back, not hiding, not hanging back. Lord, we come to this table boldly. Not because of anything in us, but because of everything in Jesus Christ. Father, we come to this table as your children to receive of your grace. Holy Spirit, fall upon us as we partake in this sacrament that we might see and feast upon the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So we're going to be passing out the elements. There'll be the song. You may recognize that we sing sometimes a hymn called Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. I think that's what Dave's going to be playing or, or Duke back there. And as they do, you can worship along with it. And then we will take the elements together in just a couple moments. Lord, you have warned us that everyone who sins deserves death, both in this life and in eternity. And because of our our sin, we owe a debt we could never pay. And through our sins, we increase our debt every single day. But you, Lord Jesus, have taken the penalty we were due, bearing and paying the full price for our sin. And so great was your sacrifice that it does not need to be repeated. For with one great act, you have fully paid for our sins forever so that we stand before you pure, without stain or blemish of sin. And so this morning we lift this cup and we give you thanks for your blood, which is sufficient to cleanse and save us now and forever. Thanks be to God. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, you are the one who has drawn us to Christ, convicting us of our sin, helping us to understand the righteous demands of God, showing us where we have fallen short, causing us to despair of our own righteousness, pointing us to Jesus, causing us to be born again, stirring up faith as we hear the gospel, and applying the righteousness of Christ to us. Thank you for doing all of this. You are also the one who empowers us to obey, renewing our mind, transforming our desires, and moving us to obey the commands of God. We give you thanks for all this great work. And we pray that you would fall on us now, filling us so that we might hate sin and embrace righteousness. Do your sanctifying work so that we who have been justified freely by faith alone might become full of holiness, love, and integrity in all we desire and do for the glory of the Father and for our own good. We ask all of this 
in Jesus' name and based on his righteousness. And God's people say, Amen. 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 Friends, let's stand together and we will conclude with the word of benediction. And I was originally going to do a different one, but I decided to, we're going to do the one that God gave to Aaron to bless his people. And I encourage you to receive the blessing of God because you are in Christ. God has promised to put his name and blessing on you, so receive it now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Go forth full of the blessing of God and be a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.